0: It was the sound of a text coming through that woke me up at 2.15 in the morning. What was so important that it couldn't wait until later? It was either a wrong number or it was bad news. Well, it was bad news. A friend in L.A. had just heard some awful information. David Bowie had died. This wasn't supposed to happen. Bowie was supposed to be one of the immortals, someone who would always be with us. After all, he'd been making music through six decades. And yes, he'd been out of sight almost entirely for a decade, but we knew he was there. He released a surprise album in 2013 to much critical acclaim. And didn't he just release another acclaimed album just three days earlier? How could he be dead? No, 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 There's, there, there had to be some kind of mistake. One of those um, internet hoaxes. But as soon as my computer booted up, I could see that everything was confirmed. David Bowie had suddenly, surprisingly, passed away. And from cancer? He had cancer? And so began weeks of mourning all over the world. Look, I I realize that if you're of a certain age, Bowie might be as foreign to you as some big band leader of the 1930s. He was this old guy that belonged to another generation like uh, Elvis or John Lennon. You might even feel that way about Kurt Cobain. Michael Jackson dying? Well, maybe you get that. But this Bowie guy? Why should you care? Why are people making such a big deal about this? Isn't this just another baby boomer sob story? Well, no, it's not. Here's a line I've repeated again and again since Bowie died. If you take any contemporary artist, and I don't care which one, and you draw a line from that artist back into the past, that line will inevitably, unavoidably intersect with David Bowie. Something he did, something he touched, something he influenced. No matter where you start, all roads lead to Bowie. And if you are to understand anything about today's music, you need to acknowledge this. Fans already know this, and if you're still uncertain, don't go away. I will explain why Bowie does and always will matter. This is the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. David Bowie and Starman from the 1972 album The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. That's a classic album that every alt-rock fan needs in their collection. Hell, it's an album that every music fan needs in their collection. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is another one of those programs that I wish I didn't have to do. But I really feel it's important we all understand why David Bowie matters, And notice the use of the present tense. He will matter for a long, long time. Yes, his music has been extraordinarily influential, but that's only part of it. Style, image, the concert arena, fashion, film, stage, painting, museums, career management, and mismanagement. Bowie's influence can be found all over rock and punk and new wave and goth and industrial and electronic music, dance, grunge, indie rock. Name another artist that was equally as important to Lady Gaga as they were to the Sex Pistols. And we can go even bigger. Bowie was one of the most important figures for gay people that pop culture has ever seen. This had tremendous social and political implications, especially in the UK, and I'm going to prove that to you. Bowie has had an effect on high finance, and he was an internet pioneer. Okay, I know, I know, you think that I'm just being this crazy fanboy and exaggerating everything. But you know something? I'm not. By the time we're done this two-part look at Bowie, you won't ever think of him in the same way ever again. And that's the whole point. I think the best way to go through all that Bowie has done for and to rock, which is what we're trying to do here, is to detail his career chronologically. Instead of hopping back and forth and risk losing context and perspective, it might be best to follow how things unfurled from the beginning and, and how Bowie's genius eventually revealed itself and began changing everything. Does that make sense? And if we're going to do this properly, we need to spread everything out over two shows. There is that much to cover. So, the beginning. is pretty, you know, auspicious, really. Bowie, or David Jones, as he was known back then, which is his real name, tried really, really hard to make something happen with music. He was a saxophone player first, inspired by Little Richard and American R&B, He was in a bunch of bands that went absolutely nowhere. He did manage to get on the telly, though. In 1964, at the age of 17, he appeared as a spokesman for the League for the Protection of Animal Filament, a totally fictitious support group for men who chose to wear their hair long. It was all a scam, just so his buddies could get on TV and earn about five pounds each. The date was November 12th, 1964. Listen. Listen.
1: got to stop. They've had enough. The worms are turning. The rebellion of the long hairs is getting underway. They're tired of persecution. They're tired of taunts. They're tired of losing their jobs. They're tired of being sent home from college. They're tired of being sent home from school. They're tired even of being refused the dough. So with the nucleus of uh, some of his friends, a 17-year-old, David Jones, has just founded the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men. Well, here we are. Long-haired man, you've got to have your hair, what, nine inches long before you can join? Well, I think we have passed that over now. Have you? Yes. Now, exactly who's being cruel to you? Well, I think we're all fairly tolerant. But for the last two years, we've had uh, comments like, darling, and uh, can I carry a handbag, thrown at us. I think it's just had to stop now. But, But does it surprise you? that you get this kind of comment because you have got really rather long hair, haven't you? We had, yes. Yeah, It's not too bad, really. No, I like it, and I think we all like long hair. And um, we don't see why other people should persecute us because of this. How are you going to set about this campaign? Well, I don't know. I think the real sort of thing we should do is to try and get more followers behind us so that we can sort of march in protest the against think it yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: That TV appearance was right around the time that Bilby appeared on record for the first time. June 5th, 1964 the group was David Jones and the King bees. Ah! That's the first time David Bowie ever appeared on record. Bowie spent the rest of the 1960s trying desperately to break into the music business. But he couldn't find a style that suited him. He even had trouble with his name. First, there was a poet and a painter of some renown in South London named David Jones. And then there was that short kid who moved to America and joined a TV band called The Monkeys called Davy Jones. So a new name was in order. Our David Jones had just seen a movie called The Alamo and he became somewhat obsessed with the character played by actor Richard Widmark. That character's name was Jim Bowie. He was a real-life American pioneer and soldier, as well as a smuggler and slave trader, who became famous during the Battle of the Alamo in Texas. So, henceforth, David Jones began calling himself David Bowie. Not Bowie, but Bowie. Oh, and let's be clear, that's how you pronounce it. Bowie. Not Bowie, not Bowie. Although guitarist Mick Ronson insisted on pronouncing it that way, it should be pronounced Bowie. Trust me, I spoke to the man himself about it. Between 1967 and 1969, Bowie tried to find his niche. He experimented with all kinds of different things. He lived in a Buddhist monastery for a while. He took dance lessons. He learned how to be a mime. He worked in a printing shop. And he was even cast in an ice cream commercial. Love with popcorn. Bowie's in there somewhere, really and that commercial was directed by another guy trying to find his way. His name was Ridley Scott and yes, it's that Ridley Scott Now here's an example of Bowie's musical experiments back in the 1960s. He would later regret this a lot but hey, like I said, he was trying to find his way <laughs> that's the laughing gnome released april 14th 1967 and yes david bowie was very very lost in the 1960s and he really didn't begin to find himself until he demoed a new song for executives at rca records that story is coming up next you're listening to the ongoing history of new music the podcast edition with alan cross this is part one of remembering david bowie now as you can see bowie didn't matter at all for the first decade of his wannabe music career he was essentially a failed folk singer and a failed song and dance man who happened to have some mime lessons under his belt To say things were going slow is an understatement, and yes, he was rather depressed. But one day in 1968, he went to see a movie completely stoned out of his mind. It was Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, and shortly thereafter, a new song emerged, almost completely and fully formed. Bowie kept thinking about the astronaut David Bowman, played in the movie by Keir DeLay. But it's possible that the name of the character in the song was inspired by the story of a failed British trapeze artist named Tom Major, who was the father of future British Prime Minister John Major, and, wait for it, someone who had a second career making garden gnomes. Seriously, I do not make this stuff up. Anyway, the song, as you probably guessed, was Space Oddity, and at first, nobody wanted it. Another novelty song, Dave? Give it a rest. Try something else. It was rejected a couple of times. But then he had a chance to demo it for some people at RCA Records. And this is how the demo went.
1: This is Major Tom to ground control I'm stepping through the door And I'm floating in a most peculiar way And the stars look very different today
0: That song became David Bowie's first ever hit, and only because of some lucky timing. This was the era of the Apollo moon missions. Who knows what might have happened or not have happened had the BBC decided to use some other song as a theme for their coverage of the man-moon landings. Let me give you a sample of that coverage.
1: 35 seconds and counting. We are still go with Apollo 11. 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T-minus 25 seconds. With this vehicle, the flight to the moon will be accomplished. T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start, 6. Ground control to Major Tom.
0: Ground
1: control to Major Tom.
0: And while this is a signature Bowie song, which reached number five on the charts in the UK, you know where it finished in North America? Never made it higher than number 124, at least the first time. When it was re-released in 1973, it reached number 15 in the US and number 16 in Canada. That early British chart success gave Bowie the confidence he needed. He felt he could be even more bold with his experiments with image and presentation, which often involved some serious gender bending. If his long hair of the early 1960s was enough to get him on TV, his style of dress, or more specifically, his dress, Bowie might have a chance at getting some attention. He appeared on the cover of his 1970 album, The Man Who Sold the World, wearing a flowing gown designed by a certain Mr. Fish, Michael Fish, a British fashion maven. Not only that, he insisted on wearing the dress in public and to interviews. Now, This sort of androgyny was not encouraged in 1970. Certain stores in the U.S. wouldn't display the record because, well, it was a dude in a dress. That was just wrong. But Bowie didn't care, even as the controversy hurt sales, at least until some new editions with different covers were rushed out in places like the U.S. and Germany. Up until then, though, dozens, maybe in fact hundreds of record stores, refused to display or even stock the album because, uh, well, the cover featured a poof turn address. Sad to say, but this was life in 1970. Inside, though, it was apparent that the floodgates had began to open when it came to new songs, and things were looking up. And when the next album arrived 13 months later, it was obvious that something was happening.
1: Ch-ch-changes. Ch-ch-changes. don't tell them to grow up on. All
0: Changes, a single from Bowie's 1971 album, Hunky Dory. And here's where it begins to get interesting when it comes to the Bowie effect. Bowie had become friends with Mark Bolin, a former folky who had taken up electric guitars and formed a psych band called T-Rex. In March 1971, T-Rex appeared on Top of the Pops, the hugely important British TV show, and he was wearing satin clothes and covered with glitter dust. Bowie was at home and watching this, and he thought it was brilliant. It was the beginning of glam rock, and he wanted a piece of it. Inspired by Bolin, his crazy new friend Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, another new friend, and a seven-inch single from 1968 called Paralyzed by a guy calling himself the legendary Stardust Cowboy, Bowie went all in. He called on his previous lessons as an actor in a mime. He experimented with makeup and costuming, and he got a haircut. Now, this is really important— Bowie's new haircut was every bit as important to rock history as Elvis' curls or the Beatles' mop tops. Bowie found a picture of a model in a magazine. She was wearing clothes by Kansai Yamamoto, a huge figure in contemporary Japanese fashion. His first collection debuted in London in 1971. Bowie was this huge fan. Together with a stylist named Susie Fussy, the model's haircut was replicated and then modified on Bowie's head razor-cut at the sides and at the back, and then back into a really puffy fluff ball. And for added effect, it was dyed a reddish-orange, which was at Kansai Yamamoto's suggestion. The elfin cute boy in the dress had been transformed into something never before seen in music. Bowie immersed himself into this brand-new persona, this doomed pansexual alien. And since he was now playing a character— He knew he could get away with singing and saying and doing things that he couldn't have done just as plain David Bowie. And he invented a name for this character. He called it Ziggy Stardust. Now, take it from me, the impact of Bowie, Ziggy Stardust on Rock is almost incalculable, and here's why. First of all, we have to put everything into context. In 1972, Rock was about jeans and t-shirts and long hair. If you wanted to annoy your parents, you dressed like a hippie. But then along comes Ziggy, and everything changes. The makeup, the costumes, the hair. No one had ever seen anything like Ziggy before. Everywhere else, concerts were basically a bunch of dudes standing on a low stage, With Ziggy, the concert was theater, a spectacle with its choreography and costuming. That was new. Yes, it was still all about the music, but with Ziggy, it was also about the show. It was hard rock mixed with vaudeville. It was glitter pop mixed with real theater. It was fashion mixed with technology. In short, it was a full experience. And again, in 1972, this was so new. Now anyone who saw Ziggy knew that this was a Bowie creation, but like I said, that approach was new. This idea of coming up with a pre-packaged, synthetic, ultra-glamorous, ultra-theatrical rock star. And there's more. Bowie was the first to feminize the macho male rock and roll star. After Bowie, there was a parade of androgynous, bisexual, gay or just plain feminine-looking acts. Depeche Mode and Gary Newman and Soft Cell, Eurythmics, the list is endless. And we can go much deeper. In January 1972, Bowie gave a flippant quote to a British music paper about having always been gay. Now today, this would be absolutely no big deal. We would just shrug. But for a celebrity to admit to being gay back then, well, it's hard to explain what kind of a bomb that was. Again, perspective is everything. Until 1967, it was a crime to be a homosexual in Britain. You could be charged and jailed under the Sexual Offenses Act. And even after being gay was decriminalized, the new conditions only applied to people over the age of 21 in England and Wales. It was still a crime in Scotland until 1980, and in Northern Ireland until 1982. And if you were a member of the armed forces and you were a guy, then you'd better keep it to yourself because being a gay soldier was a crime. And even with the decriminalization, the police were arresting people on charges of gross indecency. The number of people picked up for that had tripled since 1967, so there was still much fear. And now, this weird-looking pop star with the catchy songs telling the world that he was gay? It's unthinkable. And even though Bowie was really just being flippant, this coming out struck a chord with thousands of people who wanted to do the same thing but were too afraid. They went from being afraid and confused and alone to suddenly understanding that there was someone out there, someone famous, who was just like them. Boy George of Culture Club and Holly Johnson of Frankie Goes to Hollywood say that their lives were changed by Bowie's comments. Bowie gave them the courage to be who they were. Now, Bowie would later recant claims of being gay or bisexual, something that resulted in plenty of criticism from gay rights activists. But with this statement in January 1972, I am gay and I always have been, even when I was David Jones, the genie was out of the bottle and rock would never be the same. More on why Bowie matters in just a second, including how he encouraged the development of this brand new thing called punk rock. Now, back to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Bowie's outsiderness of the early 1970s endeared him to other people who felt alienated and marginalized. We've already addressed the issue of sexual identity, but Bowie also appealed to members of the working class who wanted to stick it to their betters. But Bowie's effect on punk goes further than that. July 2nd, 1973... All the gear for Bowie's final show on the Ziggy Stardust Tour was set up and ready to go at the Hammersmith Odeon Theater in London the following day. The only person in the building was a night watchman. A young thief named Steve Jones somehow got inside and helped himself to whatever he could carry out, mostly some microphones and some amps. In a couple of years, that gear would be used to start a brand new band with Steve as its guitarist, and that band was called the Sex Pistols. Now, this wasn't necessarily an act of desperation or sabotage. The kids who would become the first generation of British punks really, really loved Bowie. They admired the short, sharp songs, his wild fashion sense, and the way he acted like he didn't care what anyone thought, even in the face of huge amounts of ridicule and criticism. The punks really liked that. And besides, Bowie was friends with Iggy Pop, and he was cool. Bowie was also friends with Lou Reed, and he had been in the Velvet Underground. That was cool, too. And maybe most of all, Bowie wasn't afraid to kill himself off. That was really cool. Bowie speaking as a Ziggy creation retired at the end of that tour.
1: Everybody, this is me. the one of the greatest tours of our life. We really, uh, of all the shows on this tour, this this particular show will remain with us the longest because not only is it not only is it the last show of the tour but it's the last show that we'll ever do thank you
0: when people heard bowie say that they thought it was bowie that was retiring which he let everybody think what he really meant though was that he was killing off ziggy bowie had already begun to think of a new persona through which he could channel Uh, well, whatever it was that he wanted to channel. He called this new image Aladdin Sane. Say that slowly, separate it out to a lad insane, and you'll get the tiniest idea of where his head was at. Not only had the Ziggy experience been crazy for everybody involved, but he also had a half-brother he adored named Terry, who was suffering terribly with mental issues, manic depression and schizophrenia, and required hospitalization. A little more than a decade later, Terry would kill himself by lying down in front of a train. The next album, also called Aladdin Sane, was Bowie's first as a genuine rock star. It came out on April 13, 1973. <laughs> The Gene Genie, written in part about his new, even crazier friend, Iggy Pop, and also inspired by Jean Genet, the French writer, poet, and political activist. Bowie's Aladdin-sane character was a transitional one. It was Ziggy Stardust taken to a higher realm, and Ziggy was to be developed even further through the next couple of albums, although he was never really called that. The Pin Ups album, a collection of covers, also from 1973, could be called Ziggy Karaoke. And then there was Diamond Dogs, Bowie's fifth album in just two years and four months. That prolificness was a big part of Bowie's rise to stardom. Album after album, single after single, character after character, tour after tour. It was absolutely incredible. And it would have been different if it had been just more of the same album after album. But they weren't. Every record was different. Everyone was an event. And no one had any idea what Bowie would do next. Write an album loosely based on George Orwell's novel 1984? Come on, nobody did that kind of thing. But Bowie did, and he pulled it off. <laughs> The tour that came with the Diamond Dogs album was one of the most ambitious things rock had ever seen. There were sets, and costume changes, and choreography, and a big cherry-picker boom that took Bowie out over the audience during Space Oddity. It was hugely expensive and very complex for its day, and no one had ever seen anything like it. Again, Bowie took the basic rock and roll show and took it somewhere it had never been before. More theater, more spectacle, more everything. It was all new and unusual, and audiences loved it. That fall, October 1974, a double live album was taken from the tour that made for five studio albums and one live record in just two years and ten months. Incredibly, there would be yet another album the following spring, and that would mark the debut of a new Bowie. Fans caught glimpses of the transition during the Diamond Dogs tour, Bowie became less spaceman and more elegant, shorter hair, tailored suits, an air of sophistication. And the music changed, too. Bowie became interested in American soul and R&B. Things became smoother and funkier. And during breaks on the tour, Bowie scheduled studio time so he could get some of these new ideas down on tape. The result was Young Americans, released on March 7, 1975, and if you're counting, that was six albums in just three years and two months. And by this time, Bowie was big enough that someone like John Lennon was willing to hang out and do a little co-writing. Lennon was in the middle of his lost weekend estrangement from Yoko Ono, so he was very happy to party with Bowie, and Bowie was happy to party back. Not only did he and Bowie get along famously, but so did Lennon's assistant, Mae Pang, and Bowie producer Tony Visconti, and they actually ended up getting married. Listen to this track from Young Americans. The genesis of it was a conversation Bowie and Lennon had about the difficulties of being famous. They co-wrote the lyrics in about 20 minutes, and on the recording, we hear Bowie's lead vocals and background vocals from Lennon. That's John echoing the word fame in the verses. And even though Bowie didn't really like the song, it was tacked onto the album at the last minute, and then it was released as a single, and then it became Bowie's first ever number one hit in America. Young Americans introduced yet another Bowie character, the blue-eyed plastic soul singer, new haircut with a part on the right new clothes with baggy pants and stylishly baggy shirts, and a new professed love for black music and the various flavors of R&B. This endorsement encouraged a lot of his fans to explore those musical territories. And Bowie's cachet had so much widespread appeal that his music was played on both top 40 radio stations and on rock stations, He was cool in the punk clubs, and if you were into this new thing called disco, it wasn't unusual to hear a song like Fame or Young Americans mixed in amongst all the dance music. He was one of the biggest stars in the world. But personally, Bowie was in terrible shape. He was drinking a lot and had developed a powerful appetite for cocaine, and he was going a little insane, too, worried about witches and UFOs. Now, this didn't diminish his influence and importance. In fact, it made him even more mysterious and hence even bigger. And that's where we're going to pick it up next time as we consider why Bowie matters so much. More of the ongoing history of new music. The podcast edition with Alan Cross. There is no way that we can describe the importance of David Bowie to today's music in a single show. Cannot do it. In fact, I refuse to do it. If you're going to understand what's going on with Alt-Rock today, you gotta take the time to understand Bowie. Without him, there's a big gap in your knowledge. So therefore, we will pick things up next time with part two of Remembering David Bowie. I honestly think that as a music fan, it is very important that you listen. Until then, you can find me at my website at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I'm also available on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. And there's nothing wrong with an old-fashioned email. You can reach me at alan at alancross.ca. Just one L in Alan, though, please. And before I forget, here's a plug for the newsletter. I send out an email blast filled with music news and information every weekday. You will get it in your inbox before 10 a.m. Eastern, Monday to Friday. It's free, and I promise I will never spam you. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.